sort of a choppy end to Paul's letter. So it might be a choppy sermon. So bear with me. Um, A lot of different things that Paul sort of throws in at the end of his letter to Timothy here. Uh, At the end of his life, though, it is clear. It is clear that Paul's faith is rock solid. It is clear that his greatest possession is God's Word. It's clear that his greatest treasure is Jesus. And it is clear that his life has been full of relational joy and sorrow. So we see, just follow along with me here in these last verses, we see some final requests that Paul makes. Come to me soon, he says to Timothy. Okay, and then later he says specifically, do your best to come before the winter. He asks Timothy to bring with him a person and some things. Bring with you Mark and my coat and the books and above all, he says, the parchments. He gives a warning for the journey that Timothy's going to make. He says, watch out. Watch out for Alexander, this coppersmith that did me a lot of harm. And we get a lot of insight into Paul's various friendships in these last verses. Those friendships with people who were faithful and unfaithful. To him, relationships that were helpful and hurtful. It is true we can see that Paul's greatest help in ministry and his greatest hurt in ministry came from those who were his closest friends. And so we see in Paul, nearing the end of his life, there is a mixture, right? You can see it. There is a mixture of, of broken heartedness and joy. As his life winds down, there is this mixture of hurt and hope. So it resonates with what he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, when he describes Christians. He says that we are a people, among other things, that are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So we are a people somehow... And if you're a Christian, you know this. And if you're not, you probably don't yet. But if you're a Christian, you know that this is true. Paul says there is this unreasonable ability to be two opposite things at the same time. To have these two, to be in these two Seemingly opposite emotional states at the same time. You can be sorrowful and you can be rejoicing. It doesn't have to be that you're sorrowful and so there's nothing that you're joyful over. And it doesn't have to be that you're only joyful when there's nothing to be sorrowful over. But rather, we're a people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And Paul, at the end of his life, we see it in his final words here, specifically when he talks about his relational experience. He is brokenhearted. I mean, he's ending his life brokenhearted. But he's also ending his life full of joy. My guess is many of you are going to end your life, whenever that is, you're going to end your life brokenhearted. Okay, your hearts are going to be broken. But your hearts are also going to be full. You're going to be full of joy. It is possible. 
only possible in Christ, which he tells us in verse 17 and 18. Only possible in Christ for us to be these kinds of people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I wonder if that's pretty timely for us this week. And I wonder if some of you, whether there have been things that have gone on personally for you that I don't know about, or whether there are things that you've experienced this week because of what's happened nationally that have caused you pain or caused you sorrow or brought tears into your life that you didn't expect. But yet there was also, maybe for some of you, in the background, there was joy. Let's pray. And we'll look at these final words from Pastor Paul. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for how you use your word to change our hearts. And we're so thankful that these are different words than we read anywhere else. And that these words, when they come with the power of the Holy Spirit, can bring to us what all of us want, what all of us need. We all want to change. We all have things in us we wish were different. We all want to be happy. We all want joy. We all want to be content. We all want purpose. We all want something real to hope in. And whether we are Christians or not, we have these needs. We have these wants. God, and they are only satisfied, we know, through Your work done by Your Holy Spirit, through Your Word, as You teach us. You teach us grounds for real hope and contentment and joy. And you teach us what is wrong with us. And we kick against that, Lord, but we know it's true. But then you teach us what is so right with you. And you are a just God and you are a merciful God. And those who call on the name of the Lord shall have mercy. So, God, whatever we walked in here with this morning, we pray that your word would be just what we need. God, I pray for those of us who are filled with sorrow, that we would be filled with joy, that we would be able through your word to to answer those questions that you have answered for us. And I pray that as we... uh, most likely collectively mourn over tragedy and mourn over great harm done to innocence, that we would remember that the greatest harm that has ever been done in this world to the most innocent victim was the cross of Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as our conscience has been pricked this week with grievous sin, that other grievous sins that as a nation we seem to be immune to, that our conscience would be pricked. And that we would feel the gravity and the weight and the devastation of other sins we seem to be more comfortable with. But right now, Lord, in the next hour, we pray that You would in this church, with these people, Your people, 
you would minister to us and cross that great gap and speak to us. We are excited to hear from you, Lord. We pray this and hope for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So follow along with me. Um, We'll try to go through verse by verse, but for someone who loves to go verse by verse and to see everything really neat and tidy in God's Word, these verses are just terrible. And really difficult, really difficult because it is pretty choppy. And I'm not alone. I, I went for counsel on the Internet this week and, and went and saw what other pastors were doing and all of them are just saying the same thing. This is tough. There's so much great news in here, but... And he's wrapping up a letter. You've done that before, right? You wrap up a letter. I forgot this and I want to mention this and I make sure I say that. And let's get this in before I'm done. So that, Paul is no different. So that's what we find here as God is inspiring him, though, to write exactly what we need to hear in verses 9, 9 through 22. So let's just read verse 9, verse 10, and the first part of 11 and see what we find here. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia. And Titus to Dalmatia. And Luke alone is with me. Okay, so Paul's life, I said this before we prayed, Paul's life has been full of relational joy and sorrow. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons that he so badly wants to see Timothy is because he has recently suffered a particularly painful abandonment by someone he considers to be a close friend, and that's Demas. So it's a bit of the background of why Paul says things to Timothy like, please come soon. Hey, winter's coming. It's going to be cold. Please try to make it here before the winter. And a bit of the backdrop about why Paul is so emphatic about that is he's experienced a lot of relational sorrow. And some of it has been at the hands of this man, Demas. Okay, so one of the points that we can pull out right away here is that Christian ministry is full of relational sorrow. I'll give four examples that that Paul gives here. But Christian ministry is full of relational sorrow. That is especially true for those like Timothy and Paul who are in vocational ministry, but it is true for all of you because you are all ministers. And we've established that in weeks past as we've read through Paul's letter. All of us are ministers. You remember what he says to the church in Corinth? We are, we're ministers of reconciliation. You live in a world, and you saw it this week, I mean, you live in a world with with people who are suffering and people who are asking questions and people who are looking for meaning and people who are looking for purpose and people who are looking to understand this world that we live in. And we have been given the insight needed to live in this world and to live well and to be reconciled to our just Creator, God. And so we are to be ministers Advocates of reconciliation, telling people how they may be reconciled to God. So all of you are ministers. Okay, if you've got one friend, like I don't have any friends, you probably have one. 
somewhere, right? You're a minister. You have family members. You're a minister. You have neighbors. You're a minister. You have co-workers. You're a minister. Okay, and you can count on, you can count on Christian ministry being full of relational sorrow. Living for the good of others, it's, it's hard. It's hard. The way out of that, of course, is to be totally selfish and to be totally self-absorbed. And if you do that, you'll experience a whole other kind of hard and sorrow. But if we're living for the good of others, it's going to be full of sorrow. Here's some examples that he gives. One that we just read in verse 10. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we find Demas mentioned in Philemon, verse 24, and in Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14. And he makes the greeting. Paul mentions him as being someone who is faithful and with him and is writing the letter along with him. So Demas is not just some guy. Demas is a close friend. He makes the Bible. He makes it when... Paul writes letters to Philemon and to the Colossians. Demas is right there with him, and he's mentioned as a fellow minister of the gospel. But now, he is no longer a faithful partner of Paul's. He's abandoned Paul. He's forsaken Paul. And being abandoned or being forsaken is hard. It's one of the relational sorrows that he has encountered. In your life, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel... Okay, you're going to have people abandon you if you haven't already. You're going to have people leave you and forsake you. And you're going to lose close friendships. If you put yourself out there, this will happen. And Paul has, Paul has experienced that. We don't know. There's no indication if Demas ever repented, but we do know that it is not uncommon for Christians to have friends in ministry who not only depart from them, but depart from the faith. Do you know people who have not only departed from you, but they've departed from their faith in God? And that's painful. Maybe that's more painful. Maybe that's been more painful for you. I've lost friends, close friends. And lost friends who not only have abandoned their friendship with me, but abandoned their friendship with God and walked away from Him. That's very difficult to deal with. It is relationally hard. So Paul is telling Timothy a couple of things, I think, in that. Be prepared for this, Timothy. Right, Paul's been saying that all along. Right, Timothy, my life, it is a preview of coming attractions. What I've gone through, you can expect to go through it. He never says, Timothy, I've, man, my life, I've had a pretty rough go. I'm sure your life is going to go differently. He never encourages them that way. That's how we like to encourage people. That's the easy way we encourage people. Well, that will never happen to you. And thank goodness, nothing will ever go wrong in your life. And you would never do that. And I would never do that. And the truth is, and Paul doesn't talk like that to Timothy. Paul says, Timothy, it's coming to you. My life, physically, emotionally, everything over here has just been miserable, sorrowful, full of sorrow. Timothy, 
Don't expect anything different. So he's preparing Timothy for this. But it's also a reminder to Timothy, a reminder to us to not love this present world. Because why was he abandoned? Jesus said, you can't be a friend of mine and a friend of this world. What preceded Demas falling away and abandoning Timothy, and most likely abandoning Jesus? He was in love with this present world. If John Piper is right when he says that, quote, more people leave Christ and leave the church and leave ministry and leave the hope of heaven because of love for this world than anything else, end quote, then we should be warned like Timothy was. In other words, if I'm, God forbid, if I'm going to abandon Jesus, it would probably be because I love this world too much. Does that jar anyone? The, the world, really, when you look at it, does not have much to offer. But what the world does have to offer, we have in excess in this country. So everything pleasurable that can be had in this world, of all the places in the world, we probably live in the place where it is all most accessible. And that should frighten you then. When you hear that if you're going to fall away and if you're going to abandon God, it will most likely be because you'll pull a Demas and you will fall in love with this present world. And you'll fall in love with the things of this world. You'll fall in love with the comforts of this world. You'll fall in love with the amenities of this world. You'll fall in love with the approval that comes from this world. You'll fall in love with the lure of power and popularity in this world. You'll fall in love with the things of this world. So we should not love this world. So Paul experienced that at the hands of Demas. The second example here of why Christian ministry was full of relational sorrow for Paul is that he experienced not only abandonment, but just simple loneliness. And we see in the second part of verse 10 and verse 11 that Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and Luke alone is with me. Not necessarily even leaving for bad reasons, but the result has been that he's alone. Or verse 20 and 21a, skim down, where he says, Erastus remained at Corinth, so he's not with him. And I left Trophimus, who was at Miletus. So do your best to come to me before winter. So Paul's experiencing loneliness. Have you experienced loneliness? I think it ranks up there with most painful emotions. Loneliness is painful. Some of you are in relationships right now. It's a whole other subject. But some of you are in relationships right now, but you still feel alone. Because you're not loved in those relationships. You're not loving in those relationships. You're not known in those relationships. You're not knowing in those relationships. And you know in your heart they're not real. And so you're still actually alone. That's a painful emotion. Paul is experiencing that when he's here in this jail cell in Rome. His friends aren't there with him. Luke is there and Luke has been faithful, but he wants he wants Timothy to come to him. He says, come, come quickly, come before winter. 
You see, you see his mortality. He says, bring, bring my coat. The poor guy doesn't have a coat. It may be no big deal to us, right? We've got the heater on, thankfully, this week. Sort of. We've got the heater blowing on us. And when we leave here, you know, oh my goodness, it's so cold outside, you know. California cold, that is. And then we're cold for, you know, 10 seconds until we get to our car. You know, when we get in our car and we complain because the heater's, you know, we're pounding the dashboard because the heater's not working fast enough. And, you know, finally it's 100 degrees in the car. And we're, and we're happy as we drive by people walking around in the cold. I mean, right? And Paul's in a prison cell, buried in the ground. Okay, he's probably got one hole for light and air above him. And he says, when you come quickly and bring my coat and come before winter. Do your best to make it before winter. Just speculation as to why Paul says come before winter. But if he wants him to bring his cloak, he probably knows it's going to be cold. He knows that he needs the warmth. But there's probably also something to the changing of seasons that's only going to add to his feelings of loneliness and despair. And many of you are like that. Many of you are like that. Some of you, a sunny day is depressing. That's weird. But most of you, if anything, right... If the cloud is overhead for days upon days upon days upon days and it's cold day upon day upon day upon day. Okay, seasonally it affects you. Paul says, Timothy, please come. Come quick. And the way he says this is really stop everything you're doing. By the way, it would have taken Timothy months to get to Paul. Months. Months to get from Ephesus to Rome. Paul knows that. He says, "Come, stop what you're doing, please. Put somebody else in charge and come and see me. I need you. Paul. Paul, I need you. Come quickly. Verse 14 and 15, we see that ministry is relationally hard, not only because of loneliness and abandonment from inside, but from personal and hostile opposition from outside. We don't know a lot about this guy, Alexander. There's another Alexander mentioned elsewhere, probably not the same guy. But this Alexander, the coppersmith, not a believer, someone outside the church has done Paul great harm. We don't know what that was, but we do know that one of the ways that Christian ministry is relationally hard is you won't just experience loneliness in here and being abandoned by people in here. You will most likely experience hostility from outside as well if you're really a minister of reconciliation. And he suffered that at the hands of Alexander. And then verse 16, the fourth example of why ministry is relationally hard and sorrowful for Paul. Verse 16 is perhaps the saddest sentence in the entire letter, in my opinion. Verse 16. Read with me, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That is brokenheartedness. That is brokenheartedness. What is Paul saying? At my moment of greatest need, no one showed up. No one. You think he understands what Jesus experienced, went through? Who showed up to defend Jesus? Right? Surely one of his closest friends showed up. Nobody showed up. Nobody. In fact, they pretended they didn't know him. Denied even knowing him for fear of what the consequences would be. Totally abandoned in his greatest time of need. 
So see here, though, that Paul is not too proud to let his weaknesses show. That is encouraging, and I love that about Paul. He is not too strong to show his weaknesses. So the idea, right, that real men have no weaknesses. Now, we all know that's true. All the wives here know that's true. Okay, all men have great weaknesses. And pride, pride would like to convince myself and convince other that there are no weaknesses. And pride would like to not need help or not admit the need for help or ask for help or cry out for help and just have an everything's fine mentality. But see here, Paul, and I don't know other than Jesus of a man who was stronger and more masculine than the Apostle Paul. A man's man. And yet here, he is not too proud to let his weakness show. He wants Timothy to know that he's struggling. And he wants to know, he wants Timothy to know that his ministry is full of relational sorrow. I am sad and I am needy. And I need help. Stop what you're doing and get to me as fast as you can, please. Now let's go on. The second verse of 11 and you see, it's choppy. We've, we've already covered a couple verses, so we'll, we'll run through this, but we'll, we'll make sure we cover everything. So look at the second part of verse 10 through verse 12, because we see also here that the Christian ministry is full of relational joy. And there's some good news here. There's some good news as he looks back at his life. Look at the starting in the second part of verse, verse 11. Get, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. This is some good news if you know your biblical history. If you've read the book of Acts and paid close attention and followed the names, this is a very big deal that at the end of his life, Paul is requesting that a man named John Mark alone... Timothy bring along with him because he sees him as most helpful and useful. That's significant if we remember some things we read in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 15 about this man, John Mark. Remember chapter 13, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga, Pamphylia and John. That's John Mark. That's this Mark. Departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Doesn't sound like a big deal. You know, he he left. I'm sure he had a good reason to, to leave them, to depart from them, to desert from them. But then in Acts chapter 15, we find out just how Paul feels about John Mark deserting them back in chapter 13. In John, or Acts chapter 15, verse 37 and 38. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And if you remember the story, they go their separate ways. So here are Paul and Barnabas, and they're heading into ministry, and they both got ideas of men they would like to take with them. And Paul says, I'm not taking Mark with me. And his reason is the desertion that Mark committed back in Acts chapter 13. So whatever it was, 
was significant enough to Paul where he says, Mark is not useful to me. And the agreement was so sharp. And the way the wording is in the Greek, it is a face-to-face sort of confrontation that they're having here. And they end up going their separate ways. But, and we don't know what it is, something has happened between that incident and the end of Paul's life to where Paul has great affection for Mark and says that of all the people you could bring to me in my hour of need, will you go find Mark? That is really encouraging. That is really encouraging. Some of you might right now have Christian friends that have departed from you or maybe you departed from them. And there's no reconciliation. And there may one day be reconciliation. It should give you hope. It should give you encouragement. If they're a believer, you know one day there will be. It might be on the other side of heaven. But it will happen. So at the end of his life, here is Paul asking for Mark to be brought to him. And then we see in these verses to follow, including whatever happened with Mark, that in order for this relational joy, in order for you to have this relational joy that he reflects on, in order for for, for Paul to have this relational joy, there needs to be a willingness and a quickness to forgive among Christians. Because you read about some things here. You read about some ways that Paul was not treated well by his friends. And you know ways that Jesus was not treated well by his friends. And you know that both Jesus and Paul were willing and they were quick to forgive. Are you willing to forgive? And are you quick to forgive? Are you anxious to forgive? Are you looking forward to forgive? Do you want to forgive or do you want to have a hard heart? And do you want bitterness to come? And do you want resentment to come? And are you indifferent to this? We're commanded to forgive. How many times? Over and over and over and over and over. Well, what if it's really bad? No exceptions. No exceptions. Love them and hope the best for them. You may not be best buddies again. But love them and hope the best for them. Put this behind. Forgive them. So a key, and we see this here with Paul, a key to relational joy is to be willing and quick to forgive. Remember what he said in verse 16? At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And yet Paul mentions Luke and um, Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. They didn't show up either, apparently, but he still counts them as trusted Christian friends. Right? So he's not saying, yeah, my greatest hour of need. He does say that. None of my friends showed up. But he doesn't end his letter saying, so here I am, all my own, writing this stinking letter. Because all of them deserted me. He mentions them in his letter. What that means is, you ever have a friend who's going to see a friend and you say, say hi to them for me. Say hi to your mom for me. Say hi to your dad for me, okay? And if it's sincere, they really want you to pass that along. Well, that would happen here. And other men would say, if you're writing to Timothy, would you pass along my greetings? And he does that. But Paul doesn't look at them and say, write your own letter. Why don't you just write your own letter? 
Where were you when you don't get to be in my letter? Where were you in my greatest hour of need? So Paul was, we need to be, we need to be willing to forgive and we need to be quick to forgive. Because here's what's going to happen. We are going to let each other down right here in this room. We are going to let each other down big time. If you think you finally found a place with people who understand you and, and aren't going to let you down, you are, you're wrong. <laughs> you're going to be let down. You're going to be let down by some of your closest friends in here. They'll have the ability to let you down more than anyone. And they're going to let you down. Your pastors are going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. I'm not planning it. But it's going to happen. And I'm sinful. Your deacons are going to let you down. Your ministry leaders are going to let you down. Your brothers and sisters, your friends here, they are going to let you down. If it hasn't happened yet, it's only a matter of time. The question is, when that happens, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to assume the worst? Are you going to assume the best? Are you going to be willing to forgive? Are you going to be quick to forgive? And are you going to know, and are you going to know, that just because someone lets you down doesn't mean they're not a trusted Christian friend who loves you? Notice what Paul doesn't say at the end of his letter. You know what? If they, if they were real friends, was, he could have said. If they were real friends, they would have been there when I had to make my first defense. There I was. I'm looking over my shoulder. Just hoping and assuming that at least so-and-so would come through and stand there and just make the eye contact that I, I needed in that moment. And he doesn't say, you know what, if you were my real friend, you would have been there. Christian, you don't get to talk like that. You just don't get to talk like that. Are you willing to forgive? Are you quick to forgive? Are you in touch enough with your own sin to know that someone can care about you deeply and still let you down? And still sin against you? And good luck for us, right, having relational joy in our life let alone at the end of our life when there have been people who have wounded us if we're not ready and willing and quick to forgive. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. Books here are probably scrolls made of papyrus that may have been his own personal correspondence or writings. And the parchments most likely, well, parchments would have been sheets made from animal skins. And most likely that refers to the scriptures, probably the Old Testament in Greek that he would have known and and studied. He says, come with me, bring a coat, bring a Bible. Wouldn't it be great if that's all you needed? That's all you needed. Don't you feel like you need so many things? I do. I feel like I need so much. And I'm reminded once in a while that I don't need that. I really don't need that. I'm really okay without that. Paul says, here's what I need you to bring. iPhone doesn't even make the list. You know, bring me... Well, you know, maybe his Bible was on his iPhone, so he'd want that. That's why I, that's why I want it, right? He says, bring me my coat. I'm cold. Bring me my coat and bring me and bring me my books. Bring me the Bible. 
bring me some some things to to read. So at the end of his life, it is clear that the word of God is Paul's greatest possessions. He's about to die and he's about to see God face to face. You may wonder, why does he care about reading? And only those of you who are not readers ask that question. But some of you are not. But many of you probably are not. Okay, we, we, that's another mark of our culture, right? Incomparable. And we really don't like to read and value reading. Why would I read when I can watch a television? Now we've got the Discovery Channel. I can learn watching the Discovery Channel. I don't even need to read a book to learn anymore. Why would I ever read a book? What is a book? Some of you ask yourself, when was the last time you read a book? And you don't know. I remember the day when I would, I would say, does that include Cliff's Notes? Because that would be, that's all I read in college was Cliff's Notes. Really hard to find some of the books in Cliff's Notes, but that's what I would do. I had no desire to read. No desire to read. I had no desire to read until I really had to learn that I'm not going to know God if I don't read. And that's true for every one of you. God did not choose to reveal himself through a DVD, unfortunately. He doesn't have a cable channel. He doesn't own those channels. Trust me. Most of them are bad. But he, he gave us a book. He gave us a book. That's why anywhere that Christianity has spread in the world, literacy has spread. Wherever Christians go, literacy spreads. Why? Why are they so concerned with people reading? Why was reading so important here? So they can read their Bible. That's why. Other books, sure. But the Bible, foundationally. So Paul, at the end of his life, he wants to read. This is how. This is how God's word. This is how we hear from God. Through reading it, studying it, through listening to it, through hearing the preaching of it. It is the word of God. This is why Paul wants this at the end of his life. Because he wants to hear from God. Some of you have lots of weird ways that you think you hear from God. And those are not ways you hear from God. You hear from God through His Word. And anything and everything else, most of it isn't hearing from God and is maybe subject to God's Word. But God communicates to us through His Holy Word. So just a side note that we give every once in a while, right? If you don't like to read, and by that you mean even God's Word, that simply is going to be unacceptable for your life. That's not my deal. You will not have a relationship with God unless you cling to, know, study, learn from His Word. Now, everyone of you who's been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that the seasons in your life in which you are struggling spiritually in your relationship with God the most and being handed over to sin the most and struggling the most spiritually in your relationship with God, there was a direct correspondence, wasn't there? Between how much time you were in God's Word. And you know, as many of us, when I mean, we've done counseling together, and you know we discover that pretty quickly. Life not going well, well, how much are you in the Word? Not much. 
Well, what does not much mean, right? We always try to make it sound better than it is. Well, not as much. This is the first answer, right? Some of you could be all paranoid about what you say now with me. But the first answer is, well, not as much as I'd like to be. Okay? Well, me too. As we can all say that. What do you mean by that? Well, just not much. Not as much as I used to. Okay. When was the last time you read your Bible? Last year. Okay. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. There's usually a link, though, right? You know this. So I love you. I love you. And I want it to go well for you. So read your Bible. Read your Bible. Paul, at the end of his life, bring me a coat because I'm going to die. I'm going to freeze to death. And bring me my Bible because I'm going to die without that. Bring me my Bible. This is the source of strength and encouragement for Paul. William Tyndale. Some of you know who that is. A year before he was strangled and burned at the stake in 1536. And he was martyred because he was translating the Bible into English. Isn't that amazing? We go down to the bookstore today and there's just we have to narrow down which English version of the Bible we want. There was a day where people didn't want the Bible translated into English, into a common language. They didn't think just anybody could read it. That's for the popes and the priests. And no one else should have God's Word in their hands. It was a big deal. Big deal. He was translating the Bible into English. He was burned at the stake. And he wrote this from his prison cell. And it's amazing. He sounds just like Paul. This is what he wrote from his prison cell in the 16th century. I beg your lordship that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has a warmer coat also for this, which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. The question I ask myself is, How big a deal would it be to me to not have the Bible? Some of you may not even know where your Bible is right now. And so that's a sign that it's not very important to you. But how would we feel if we we didn't have a Bible? Just didn't have one. Couldn't have one. Would we beg Would we beg those who were in authority over us to get us a Bible? Is that what we would want somebody to bring us? Is that what we'd be longing for? That's what Paul is longing for. Verse 17 and 18. I think the most encouraging, probably the greatest verses in this last section because they're about Jesus. And let's read verse 16 just to remember what he had just said. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But here's the good news. Verse 17, and you knew he would go there, right? But the Lord, and who is the Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord, what did he do? Stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me, 
the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. At the end of his life, it is clear that Jesus is Paul's greatest treasure. Jesus is Paul's greatest treasure. Not Luke, not Mark, not Timothy. Jesus is Paul's greatest treasure. Let me just say two things about these two verses. Number one, now, now first, Jesus, though, we see that if we read this in context, we see that Jesus never intended that the enjoyment of his presence would replace the enjoyment of the presence of Christian friends. So we do want to say that. That is clear here. This isn't, it isn't just a Jesus and me and no one else and I don't need anybody else. I don't want anyone else. All of you are screwed up and you're all fallible and you're just going to hurt me and you're just going to abandon me and I'm going to be lonely even though you're my friend. You're a terrible friend. I mean, we can start thinking that way. All I need is Jesus. That's not exactly what Paul is saying in these last verses. Right? We just looked at it. He's talking about his need and desire for friends. He said, everyone deserted me, everyone, but nevertheless, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. But he does not then say that since I have Jesus, I don't need these lame friends of mine. And he could have said that. And so I'm done with all of you. Bring me my coat, bring me my Bible, and then go away. He says, do your best to come to me before winter. He values, he values Christian friendship. Listen now he talks to others in his letters to the Romans. Chapter 1, verse 1, I long to see you. Sorry, verse 11 of chapter 1. I long to see you. And then he says in chapter 15, verse 23, I have longed for many years to come to you. Hear how he talks about his relationships and his friendships. Or to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying that the enjoyment of his presence would replace the enjoyment of the presence of Christian friends. It is both and. Or when he writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. Listen to how he writes about them. And think if there are people in your life that you can speak of this way. Being affectionately desirous of you. It's like a love letter. Written to a church. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So Jesus never intended that the enjoyment of his presence would replace the enjoyment of the presence of Christian friends. But number two, that said, Jesus is the only totally reliable, flawless, all-satisfying friend. Verses 
Jesus alone. We love friends, we love people, but our hope is not in our friends. Our hope is not in other people. Relationships get really messed up when other people need to be our Jesus. And we want them to meet needs that Jesus meets. We want them to be infallible. In other words, incapable of error. And we're shocked when they err and make mistakes and sin against us. Or we want to be all satisfied in friendships and relationships or marriages that we have. And that's just not going to happen. These are never going to be all satisfying relationships. These are not going to be flawless relationships. And those people whom we have relationship with, they are not going to be totally reliable. They're just not. Jesus is the only totally reliable, flawless, all-satisfying friend. Now, when you're lonely, that's really good news. But if you've got a lot of friends that you love too much, that's also something to think about. Jesus alone, alone, is that totally reliable, flawless, all-satisfying friend. So those of you who have experienced what Paul has, and maybe Timothy, and you've been abandoned, and um, you've had things not go well, And you've lost relationships, right? And you've lost friendships. It is good news, isn't it? You never have to wonder, is Jesus going to do that? When is He going to bail? But you struggle with trusting Him. Just like you struggle with trusting people. Well, I've had relationships with all these people. And they've abused my trust and it hasn't gone well. This person I'm friends with now, they're probably going to write pessimism. They're probably going to do the same thing. And you think if you're honest with yourself, you think Jesus is going to do the same thing. Isn't that great news? He is not going to do the same thing. But he is very different. Do you wonder when Jesus is just going to call you up and say, enough is enough? You just think it's going to end. You're just waiting for the email from Jesus that says, you know what? I don't even want to look at you again. We are through, right? We're over. Seriously, you want to confess that sin again? You just, you just imagine Jesus laughing at you. Really? What, what has it been? Three hours? You know, is there a lid? Once I hit that, Jesus is done with me? No. No, no, he is unlike us in that way. He is totally reliable. He is all satisfying. Some of you put too much pressure on your friends. You put too much pressure on your wives or your husbands. Put too much pressure on your brothers and sisters in your church. And you have very unreasonable expectations of them. And you expect them to be Jesus. You look to them to be the source of your hope and joy and happiness. And so if it's not going well with them, there's no joy in your life. There's no hope in your life. There's no happiness. You expect them to fix all your problems. But people are never going to do that. Never supposed to do that. 
If anything, they give you more problems so that you can go to Jesus and be reminded that He is the only one that is totally reliable. He is the only one that is flawless. And He is the only one who is all satisfying. So there's Paul in the prison cell. Timothy's out outside, presumably. It's just me. It's Luke. Send me my cloak. Send me my Bible. Let me tell you a little bit about the hardship and where my heart is broken right now, where my heart is filled with joy right now. But what is he saying in all that? But be clear, I'm good. I'm good. Because even in my greatest hour of need, when everyone bailed, everyone, the Lord Jesus Christ stood by me and strengthened me and met every single one of my needs. Christians and friends, the Lord Jesus will do that for you for eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, that God came to die for us. We thank You then for sending Your Holy Spirit to comfort and minister and encourage, soften hearts and open eyes and help us to understand You that God would come and minister to us. God, we thank You for the painful providences that You've allowed in our lives, and we thank You for the friendships and the relationships that have gone bad. We thank You for the wounds that we've had. We thank You that You as well, as You say in Psalm 147, that You've come and You've bound us up You've healed us. You've ministered to us, the brokenhearted. So thank you, God. Thank you that there is no limit to your love. Thank you that you are infinitely reliable. And thank you, Lord, that you do give us shadows of this in friendships here on earth. But God, help us never, ever ever to to look to other people for what we should alone look to you for. And so when we're disappointed and hurt, may we then be able to forgive. May we then be able to love, pray for. Because we have all of our needs met. All of our needs met by You, drawing from the riches in Christ Jesus. So as Your church and as Your people, we ask that You would continue to do Your good work in us today, tomorrow, forever. We give You all the thanks, the praise, and glory. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. 
For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.